Some of you perhaps, like myself, grew up with the expression, when such and such happens, that will be the acid test. When a young man engineers many romantic moments and makes these great romantic speeches, she's not sure until those magic words, I love you, will you marry me? And if the answer is yes, a ring and a date, then she's sure. That's the acid test. And whether it be in the arena of romance, or as it is in the arena of romance, so it is in the spiritual realm. I can say that I'm a Christian. I can think that I'm a Christian. But the acid test, the crucible of credibility, is not what I think or what I say, but ultimately what I do. And I challenge you biblically to refute what I'm going to say next. When there is true spiritual life, true and genuine new birth with the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you've truly been made a new creature in Christ, there will be fruit every time. Every time there will be fruit if it's genuine because of the law of spiritual biogenesis. Like begets like. And the Holy Spirit is in your life. The fruit of the Spirit will be manifest because it is His fruit. <clears throat> Our text this morning is 1 John chapter 2. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. Now, by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Ouch. But whoever keeps his word Truly, the love of God is being perfected in him. And by this we know that we're in him. He who says he abides in him ought also to walk as he walked. Brethren, I write no com new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him? And in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going. Why? Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Father in heaven, I thank you that we can know that we know and can live accordingly without being insecure, uh, secure in our identity and relationship in and with Christ. Father, I don't know to whom this message today, this 
chapter of Scripture might most apply to, but it applies in one way or another to all of us, myself especially. And I pray, Father, that my heart and our hearts would be pliable and open to the Master Teacher, in whose name I pray, amen. Now, for our purposes this morning, there are essentially four kinds of people. Oops. Slow reaction here. Those who are unsaved and, could, and know it and could care less. They're the ones that will joke to you about uh, wanting to go to hell so they could be with their buddies. You know, you guys at work, you've heard that. And then those who are saved and know it. But there's two other categories of people. Those who are saved and don't know it. And that's usually for one of two reasons. There is sin in one's life, and your profession doesn't match with your actions. And so there's insecurity, uh, and you're not sure. I've been around a long time, long enough that at my age, I can listen to people, especially guys, they're telling me that they're not sure if they're saved. And they've been uh, in church all their lives. And after about three minutes of, of listening, I say, well, well, what are you into? Nine times out of ten, that's a problem. They're into something, and it's incongruous with what they say they believe, and they're beginning to feel insecure about their Am I saved? The, the other often reason, I don't know what's my doing something here I shouldn't be doing. That's the way it was when you came up here. What's the deal, Neil? I'm glad somebody knows how these things work. The third category are those who are saved and don't know it because of sin or because of faulty teaching. Been told that they could lose their salvation and gain it lose it, gain it, lose it, gain it. And it's kind of like, you know, you have to deserve it in the first place, and if there's something you can do to deserve it, then there's something you can do to lose it. And they live in this gray world of insecurity and frustration, and I feel sorry for folks in that situation. The Apostle Paul is addressing this third category of people here this morning. There may be some of you here like that. And then there are those who are unsaved, but think they are saved. Possibly, some of you here this morning are in that category. I hope not, but it's possible. I do know, based upon polling in America today, that over half of the people in America claim to be Christians. Yet, clearly, most are not. They think they are, but they're not. Self-identified Christians fall, uh, many fall into this category. I think by far the largest category in America today. Now I want to set the, uh, give the setting for this text. It's in the first two verses that were covered last week. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. 
and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation means to turn away the wrath of God or to satisfy his violated justice. Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. Justice was satisfied in the sacrifice, in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. This verse tells me, among other things, that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was sufficient for all, but efficient for those who bow the knees of their hearts in repentant faith to receive him as their Lord and their Savior. The point I'm making is that God loves you. God is for you. The, the, the heart disposition of God towards everybody, for God so loved the world. God is not out to get anybody. But as the righteous judge, if you die in your sins, you will bear the penalty of your sin by your choice. But God has made an option because God loves the whole world, but especially those who are his own. I once read that the severity of a penalty is the measure of the value placed upon the object the law is protecting. The first thing God did when Noah got off the boat, ark, was to institute capital punishment. Before the flood, it says violence filled the earth. And vengeance was the the name of the game. And it was a, a bad place to live. And as soon as mankind and all the animal life and plant life and the earth were destroyed and remade, refashioned, I should say, they come out of the boat and God instituted capital, money, capital punishment because mankind is valued. Why? Because it's created in the image of God. That's what it says in Genesis 9. God values human life so much that he put the protection of capital punishment, premeditated murder, was to be dealt with through capital punishment. In the Old Testament law, there are 17 capital crimes. 16 of them have a sacrifice. When one came in repentance and gave the sacrifice, they wouldn't be put to death, even though they were deserving of it. The one exception is premeditated murder. The wonder of Jesus dying for us, valuing us so much, and he did that Ephesians 2 says, when we were hostile, rebellious, alienated from God, but he died for us anyway. He valued us beyond any way that we can begin to imagine. So, that being the case, how can I know? I've placed my trust and my faith in Christ, or I think I have. How can I know that I know him? That's the, the big question. How can I know for sure? Our text begins in verse 3. Now by this, we know that we know him. Almost every one of us at one time or another have wrestled with this question. Why? Because our conduct doesn't match up to our profession, so we wrestle. Rightfully so. The conviction of the Holy Spirit brings that about. The second reason is our 
emotions either contradict or don't confirm our faith. And that's huge. In our biblically illiterate, self-professed Christianity in America today, the basis of faith, by and large, is emotion rather than scripture. These things, John said, I have written that you might know that you have eternal life. The word of God, the truth, based upon the character of God, energized by faith, produces salvation. Feelings follow. And they may be up or they may be down. They're just feelings. But for so many people today, it begins with feelings. Faith in feelings produces chaos. Salvation, you see, is psychologically backward or upside down. Everything else in life we earn or deserve, but that is not true with salvation. Now, I suspect that the majority of us here this morning, uh, the issue comes down to this. The issue of assurance versus security. I am secure in Christ. That's a fact. If I am in Christ, I am secure. But how I feel about it, whether I have assurance of that or not, is a whole other issue. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, the question is asked, if God be for us, who can be against us? Rhetorical question. Doesn't matter who's against us. God's for us. And, and then in verse 35 of Romans 8, it says, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall persecution, trial, and there's a whole laundry list of things, and it says at the end, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. And then in verse 38 of Romans 8, it goes on to conclude, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or principalities, or powers, or things present, or things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created creature will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. That's a pretty secure place to be. But it even gets gooder. You look at John chapter 10. In the words of Jesus, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who, gave, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. If you're truly in Christ, it's double indemnity. You're in Christ's hand, and he will never let you go. And the Father's hand is around Christ, and you're secure forever. First John chapter 2, verse 3, by these things you can know that you know. It's talking about the assurance of the reality of our security in Christ. And as we read these verses about our security in Christ, we say, yeah, but I don't feel secure. (laughs) In 1974, I was living in Central California. I flew up to Anchorage, flew out to King Salmon, and then down the Aleutian Peninsula to a place called Chignik, where I met my uncle and fished as a deckhand on a purse seiner that summer. And I'd been looking forward to that all of my life. That was on my bucket list. Man, that was right at the top of my bucket list. About halfway through the season, we anchored in Chignik Lagoon, 
in about 30 foot of water, uh, about 1.30, 2 o'clock the night, we were going to catch an hour of sleep before we continued fishing. And we'd no more than got to sleep, and the, it was slack tide, and the sl- tide started going back out, and the, when the boat got to the end of the rope, it was just a little bump. And my uncle came crashing down out, uh, out of the top bunk like that, you know. <laughs> and and uh, he was frantically looking out the, the galley window. He thought the anchor was slipping. And he was terribly fearful that we'd end up on the rocks. And he's down there like, just like this. And this little voice that was mine in the, in the lower bunk says, Hey, Rich, is your anchor slipping? And he knew he'd been caught. And he I always crashed my out of the bunk like that. He was insecure. He had no assurance. Now, here's the question. Did his lack of assurance change the fact that we were secure? That anchor wasn't going to move one way or the other, no matter how he felt. It didn't change the facts. He was secure. So it is with us. If we are truly born again and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, a new creature in Christ. The issue is not, am I secure in Christ, but am I walking in the assurance of my salvation? This may not seem like a very critical issue to some, but I, I submit that it is uh, extremely, supremely significant. And what follows in this text this morning is what I would like to call a homiletical gold mine. Verse 3 is the proposition. You can know that you know. Well, how can you know that you know? There are three tests given in this text. They all begin with he who says. Verse 4, he who says, verse 6, and he who says, verse 9. The first test, beginning in verse 4, is the obedience test. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I don't see a whole lot of gray there. Sounds pretty black and white, doesn't it? But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is being perfected in him, and it's by this that we can know that we are in him. The only appropriate response To a person in a position of authority is obedience. Further, when you look at the cross upon which Jesus died, how can we do anything less but say, thank you, Lord, and follow in obedience to the one who is both Lord and Master and Savior? Now, is there such a thing as detours in our Christian life, even deliberate disobedience? There is, by the way, such a thing as backsliding, But it will not last. It will not be forever. One who is truly a child of God will return because the Holy Spirit will not allow one of his children to continue on indefinitely in sin. And if there's a terribly stubborn heart, the New Testament teaches there is sinning by a Christian unto death. The Lord can and will take a person home prematurely if they persist in unrepentant behavior. That's quite a frightening thing, but it's an expression of God's mercy. 
It's an expression of his love. The, the obedience test begins with the claim, he who says, I know him. There's a lot of people that make that claim. They know the, the religious lingo. They know where to be, what to say, how to look, how to perform. But it's not a, a reality in their lives. They have never acknowledged the right of God to govern their lives. Remember, Jesus will say of people who even cast out demons in his name, depart from me, I never knew you. He who claims I know him and does not keep his commandments, the conclusion is very stark. He is a liar and the truth is not in him. We don't like to hear that, but that's that's pretty black and white. Now, it's important to know the significance of the present tense here. Who does not keep, one who is... He does not have a settled lifestyle, a continuity, a consistency of walking in the light. He is just rarely associated with the light. The the reality is this. There are saints who sometimes sin. There are sinners who sometimes appear to be saints, but they're not. Do I need to say that again? There are saints who sometimes sin. But there are sinners who sometimes appear to be saints, but they're not. The truth is not in them. In contrast, but he who keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected, is being perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. We're not talking about perfect here. We're talking about the process of transformation is obviously taking place in a person's life. Now, I want to talk just briefly here about a conundrum that we have. You know, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says, Whoever is born of God does not sin, does not continue in sin. Again, this is the, the present tense that is being used here. His lifestyle his and empathy is toward light. His heart has been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And his lifestyle doesn't mean he's perfect, uh, but that his heart disposition is obviously and always toward, toward the Lord and towards truth and towards what is right. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, it goes on to say, Whoever is born of God does not continue in sin, but his seed, capital H, his, God's, his seed remains in him. And I believe that's the seed of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who gives us spiritual life. And he cannot sin or continue in sin because because he's been born of God. The seed is God, and he cannot continue in sin indefinitely because that's contrary to his nature. What we have here in 1 John 3, 9 is the law of spiritual biogenesis. What is born of the Holy Spirit will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes it's eventually of a heart of a Christian who is unrepentant and stubborn, willful. Ultimately, God asks us to surrender our will to him. 
I have a friend who teaches that Job wasn't righteous, the Old Testament patriarch, Job. But as I read the book of Job's, he was righteous, and I know that for two reasons. God says so, and though he did speak unrighteously at a time in the beginning part of the book of Job, God confronted him and rebuked him. And what was Job's response? He was a righteous man, and it says that he repented in dust and ashes. That's always the response. When their sin comes into the life of a, a truly born-again Christian, the seed of the Holy Spirit is within him, he comes to a place of repentance. Now on the surface, this test is not ironclad, the obedience test. Why? Because hypothetically, one could be obedient, but not out of faith, maybe out of fear. I want to remind you that Satan believes in Jesus. Satan obeys Jesus when Jesus commands. He obeys when he has to. It never comes from his heart. Demons believe in God. Demons, be, demons obey Jesus. When the demons proclaim, this is the Son of God, Jesus says, shut up, don't speak. I don't want to hear my identity come from demons. They shut up. They obey. Demons believe and obey God when they have to. So hypothetically, a person could look like he obeys and believes. But he's merely a sinner who sometimes looks like a Christian. The first test is the obedience, the obedience test. The second test is the walk test. <clears throat> Verse 6. He who claims, self-identified, he who claims that he abides in Christ ought himself to walk just as he walked. <clears throat> We're talking about abiding is the basis for walking as he walked. You, can't, you can imitate Christ, but you can't walk as he walked without abiding in him. And the word walk comes from the Greek word peripateo. In the secular academic world, this word is understood in the context of Aristotle's peripateo school. This was a school, unlike all the other Greek philosophers, when they wanted to learn from Aristotle, he said, follow me. Eat where I eat, sleep where I eat, watch what I watch, Observe what I say, what I do. As you follow me, you're going to learn my philosophy. That was the Peripateo school. That's how Jesus schooled his disciples. And people at one point exclaimed that they have been with Jesus. They could tell because they were just like him at times. That, this went far beyond what we often fall into, and that is sin management. We, we, we try to manage our sin and say, well, I'm doing better, or I'm not as bad as others. And as we try to manage our sin, as we focus on the sin, we become just like what we're trying not to become. How do you change? Follow Jesus. Walk with him. Commune with him. Be in his word. Be aware of his presence at every moment of every day. And as you walk and commune in the 
in harmony with him, in obedience to him, the, the, the knees of your heart bowed before him, guess what? These other things start to fall away. Where sin management did not work, relationship with Jesus will. We're talking here, rather than sin management, we're talking about a life that encompasses values, attitudes, choices that come from hanging out with Jesus. And the word abide comes to mind. The kind of living that is rooted in the awareness of our spiritual DNA, which is a new person in Christ Jesus, that conforms and transforms us to the image of Christ. And then the third test, the love test, beginning in verse 9, says this, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. But he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause of stumbling in him. <clears throat> now before we examine that, the love test, I want to go back to verse 7 and 8 and read what it says. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment. And then in verse 8 he says, again, a new commandment I write to you. Now, which is it? Old or new? Are we given a bum steer here? Is, is John becoming senile or uh, confused? Is it, an old, is it an old commandment or a new man, commandment? In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. I thought Jesus said that. He did. When confronted by the, the lawyer, asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus said the greatest commandment, and he quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second commandment is likened to it, your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was not being original. He was not giving a new command. He was simply quoting the Old Testament. He went on to say, love your, love your enemies as well. And in John 13, verse 34, he says this, a new commandment, which was not a new commandment. What's going on here? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The number one test of identity as a believer is do you love other brothers and sisters in Christ? It's not a new commandment. It's an old. That's why John was saying that. It was not new in terms of time, but it was new in terms of it's always new, fresh, vital, living, alive. Why? Because it is so alien to the culture in which we live that is self-centered. Love seeks to do sacrificially what is best for the object of the love. And it is always outward and upward. Our world, go to the, the news rack at the checkout. Me, self. God says, love your brother as yourself, your neighbor, and most of all, God. So, the third test, he who says he is in the light <clears throat> and hates his brother is in darkness 
even till now. There's no middle ground. Either one is alive in the light or dead in the kingdom of darkness. Everything seems to be gray in our culture. But agape love is pure white, absolute, and it lives for the welfare of others. In verses 10 and 11, we see the contrast so clearly. He who loves his brother abides in the light. But he who hates his brother is in darkness until now. And then catch the last phrase there in verse, verse 11. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going. Why? Because darkness has blinded his eyes. That is horribly sad, tragically sad. When one walks in darkness, the consequences are horrible. Light rejected inevitably leads to darkness. You walk in the darkness long enough, you won't be able to recognize light. Satan has blinds the minds of those who walk in darkness and has an accumulative effect. The fish in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, have never seen the light of the sun, yet they have, they have eye sockets, but no eyes. Light rejected inevitably leads to blindness. How's your credibility this morning? When you test your life in the crucible of credibility, how are you doing? This test isn't how others view you. The reality of where, where are you? Are you secure in Christ or in darkness or walking in insecurity? Are you secure in living an abundant life, knowing that you know that you are in him? Or are you insecure because you're hiding out in the shadows of darkness and of unconfessed sin? It's one of those two possibilities, and there's a third. You could be, perhaps, in light of what you've heard this morning, terrified because you know that you're in darkness without Christ. You know, if you're in darkness without Christ and you're scared, that's wonderful. That's good news. It means you're still able to comprehend and respond to truth. If you've heard what you've heard today and you know you're not in Christ and you could care less, I'm terrified. 